Welcome to the Theology Pugcast. It's great to have you with us. And uh, it's, the, it's the gang again, and uh, we are on uh, Zoom again. Uh, that's not going to be, you know, the way it always is uh, going forward. You know, we were just uh, talking a little bit about plans to get the group together, and uh, we'll tell you a little more about that later. But before I forget, I'm C.R. Wiley. I can forget that sometimes. <laughs> I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor here in the Pacific Northwest, and uh, I've written a few things. And my my book on Tom Bombadil is my latest uh, project, and it's into the publisher, and they told me that things look good, and uh, we're looking forward to seeing that published. Brad Beerzer from Hillsdale College is writing the foreword to the book, and that's a great thing. You know, Brad wrote uh, Sanctifying Myth, you know, which is a book we've talked about before here on the podcast, and um, he's a good friend and a first-rate scholar, uh, written a number of books on Andrew Jackson and Russell Kirk and so forth, so I'm very pleased that he's, he's doing that. But enough about that, enough about me. Let's uh, go around the horn, as they say in baseball. It is baseball season, so we're going <laughs> around the horn, and Glenn, tell us about yourself and all of your new adventures. I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a professor emeritus at Central Connecticut State University, teaching your, well, having taught European <laughs> history and um, other things. I'm um, senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, and uh, I've got a ministry, Every Square Inch Ministries, and I got a whole bunch of speaking gigs coming up this summer. So. All right. All right. Tom. Uh, Tom Price, systematic theologian and Christian ethicist. I teach both at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and some other places and am busy writing this summer. And there'll be more to be announced as that stuff takes uh, fuller shape. But uh, do keep keep waiting, keep <laughs> anticipating, keep anticipating. There, there is, uh, there is a, uh, a moment, an event coming when that announcement will you remember uh, the old. Clear. Remember the old ketchup commercial, right? Anticipation. Yeah, that's right. Who, who, who sang that? Was that Carly Simon? Was that who? who? It sounds like, yeah, that was Carly, <laughs> that was Carly Simon. Yeah. 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 Anyway, you're making us wait, Tom. You're making us wait. Anyway, <laughs> so uh, today is my day. And as I've been thinking about what to talk about, uh, my mind was prompted to, to uh, bring up a subject that I think all three of us have some experience with. It, it, it concerns the artistic endeavor, and it's the, it's the matter of, uh, well, it's creativity, or another way of putting it, maybe originality. Everybody wants to be original. Have you, have you noticed that? Everybody wants to be completely different, just like everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> it reminds me of that, remember that Far Side uh, cartoon where you've got the, 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 all the penguins, and uh, there's one penguin, you know, in, in the middle of the pack, and he's, uh, you know, singing, I've got to be me. <laughs> anyway, yeah, we do live in a culture that promotes, uh, you know, this idea that, that, you know, you should be utterly unprecedented. You should be completely original. In fact, we, we promote the idea that, you know, the, the greatest work of art that we can give to the world is our lives, you know, right? You know, this idea of self-creation. Yeah. Well, what prompted my thinking along this line was was some stuff in in uh, Carl Truman's new book, "The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self." Here it is. It's a good book. You mm -hmm. know, when I when I first dove into it, uh, the, about the first third of it was really familiar territory. I was like, "Hey, that's great. I'm glad Carl's finally letting folks in the reform world know about Rousseau and Blake and Kelly <laughs> and all these guys." But but he, when he gets into the rise of the new left, no, I'm obviously very familiar with the new left, like you guys are. Uh, he gets into some some detail that I was not familiar with, and it's been very helpful. Uh, but on sort of the larger, uh, you know, sort of backdrop against which Carl is discussing this whole, you know, rise and triumph of the modern self is a, a contrast uh, between mimesis and poesis. <laughs> so he talks about mimesis and poesis. So folks out in podcast land are saying, what in the world are you talking about? <laughs> mimesis and poesis? Well, if you listen to those, the, to those words, you can, you can kind of get a sense of what they're referring to. Mimesis, mimicry, right? Mimesis is the idea that uh, there is a reality to which we conform and uh, it takes discipline. And uh, because we're conforming to it, in some sense, we are conforming to ideals, and uh, through the process of conforming to those ideals uh, and being shaped by them, 
we grow in wisdom, you know, because the world is ordered uh, by the wisdom of God. And if we uh, can perceive the structure of God's creation, in some sense, his wisdom will be reflected in us. Mimesis. Now, poesis, the idea of poetry, poetry, you know, making. Uh, this is what, and I think that sometimes people, when they hear poesis and they hear poetry in poesis, they think that's where it stops. But poesis is any kind of making, anything from making, you know, uh, you know, what my, my son Gabe makes on his anvil, you know, in terms of creating, you know, f you know, uh, uh, metal art or just metal that uh, metal tools, uh, utensils, and so forth, uh, to um, epic poetry or film or novels. In other words, it's 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 making in the in the broadest sense. Now, what Carl notes is that there was a shift uh, sometime uh, in the Renaissance, or maybe the Renaissance could be. The, described as the shift uh, in which we move from mimesis to poesis and it becomes into full flower in uh, the romantic movement, you know, with people like Shelley and Byron and so forth. Um, one of the things that was fascinating to me is as I read, you know, uh, Carl's treatment of the, you know, romantic poets. So he doesn't get into to Samuel Taylor Coleridge, who mm -hmm. is the most Christian of, of the, of the romantic, romantic. poets which uh, maybe it was an intentional oversight in his part because it wouldn't actually further his his uh, his argument <laughs> by bringing by bringing Coleridge in, but anyway. Um, and, and as we we talked about before, the Romantic movement is pretty diverse. Yeah, I mean there there are a lot of other elements to Romanticism besides the ones that he's he's highlighting. But I think you know that that doesn't make what he's doing invalid. It's it's just that we have to be careful not to overextend it into everybody who's who's in the Romantic movement. That's right. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like modernism. You know, T.S. Eliot was was a modernist and a very self consciously a Christian one. You know, so, so you know, you know, it's it's a, there are there are lots of puzzles with these things. Yeah, and just because I've got to do this, it's in my contract. Um, I'm going to argue that the Renaissance isn't really when this starts. Okay, well, I'm I'm fine it's, with that. I I, do, I defer I defer to your wisdom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's your field, it's not of, mine. It's part of the myth of the Renaissance that was really invented in the 19th century, which was the time when this stuff was really in full flower. Yeah, well, that's, yeah, and I'm, I'm, I, can, I can follow that. Yeah, well, if you think about the Renaissance, the great Renaissance artists uh, were masters in the classical, you know, forms. So, you know, we, we, when we think about people like, you know, like Leonardo or Michelangelo, you know, or any of the, you know, the composers. We're, we're talking about people who uh, recognize the structure of reality and are in some sense working really hard to represent it, you know, artistically. Uh, and, but this kind of gets me to, to the kind of the heart of my argument or my, the heart of my, uh, my, my thinking here and the reason for bringing this up. Uh, I think that there's kind of a, a, an odd uh, and a paradox here. Uh, every paradox, of course, is is odd. That's why they're, you know paradoxes are so noteworthy. But this is one that I think is entirely lost on most people in our time. If any of you, if you know, if you guys are old enough to know folks who, you know, were old when when uh, you know you were in your twenties or you know teens, I knew a lot of really uh, interesting people um, who were very you know quirky. Uh, eclectic uh, in their personalities and, and just the way they approach life, and they had grown and they had grown up in, in in a period of time where there was a lot of pressure to conform to uh, standards, right? Uh, standards, you know, moral standards, aesthetic standards. Now, uh, these folks uh, sometimes uh, embraced those standards, sometimes intentionally resisted them. But they, 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 they strike me, as I, as I recall, as I think about them, as being uh, people who were truly uh, idiosyncratic. They, you know, they, they, you know, they were, each of them was a, was, a, was a kind of a world into himself or herself. And you kind of got into the, to their lives and you learned a lot about you know, what made them tick and 
often they were very admirable people in many, many respects. I remember when I lived in Cambridge, uh, you know, this was back in the 90s, late 80s, early 2000s. And um, there was a lot of stress and diversity, you know, obviously, you know, uh, all the stuff that we see today kind of, you know, all over Twitter and Facebook and social media in general and, and any other kind of media. Well, all that was sort of an embryo there in Cambridge. I remember a woman in my church when I was there, she was a Jamaican woman who volunteered in the public schools. And I think it was in like 1993 or four, she told me that she was no longer allowed to refer to her husband when she was in the school. She could only refer to her spouse. And the, uh, and the reason was, is the, the lesbian couples and what have you didn't, it, it would, it would, it would, uh, it was, it was a microaggression <laughs> if she did that. But uh, so here's a black woman, you know, uh, and a Christian who uh, is being uh, told that she has to be more sensitive to the, you know, you know, other minorities in terms of her, her speech. But getting to my point, during those days, when I was in this environment where you had people from all over the world, the diversity was very superficial, in my opinion. It was all on the surface, and everyone was uniform when you got past the surface. The attitudes, uh, the outlooks, uh, the convictions, and they were uniformly bland. I mean, these were bland people. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) They, they, did, they, didn't, they didn't have any, the only time they would ever get round up about anything was, on, you know, if you were talking about, I don't know, global warming or something. And even then it had the feeling of like they're on the, the uh, they're, they're cheering their team or something like that. It wasn't really deeply, you know, sort of uh, held convictions. These were convictions that helped them to feel like they belong to this group. Mm-hmm. So my point is, is that, is that, it's when you have a you know a focus on conforming to a form that you end up with variety and you end up with uh, interesting people um, for a range of reasons. Anyway, that's that's kind of a, a, a something to start off with in terms of this discussion. And I have more thoughts, but what do you, what do you guys, I, I can tell you're just chomping at the bit. <laughs> well, what, what, what in, what's interesting to me about that right now is that uh, with the work I've been doing on critical theory, one of the parts of it uh, involves standpoint theory. And standpoint theory says that there's no such thing as objective knowledge. All of your knowledge is really a product of being at your particular point in all the various intersectional categories. So to keep it simple, all white males think alike, all black males think alike, all black females think alike, and so on. Now, there are other categories that you got to work in if you're going to really do it correctly. So what that means is that if you're a bean counter at the university and want diversity, all you have to do is bring in people from a variety of intersectional categories and you will automatically have diversity. The problem is the initial premise is wrong. Yeah, right. And, you know, which is why you have such complete ideological uniformity at the universities in the name of diversity. It's because they're starting with a faulty premise on on how people think and what constitutes knowledge for individuals. Right. Right. Yeah. And it and it and it loses. Uh, I think that, that superficiality you mentioned before also mm-hmm. is is really what you know. I mean, we we see it all over the place now with first person of this group to do this or that, mm-hmm. and it, it's completely uninspiring at a certain point um, because it. So what? It's it's done more in terms of being a symbol or a sign rather than a, a sign referencing something significant. Um, it isn't really accomplishing anything now other than just being able to advance through certain um, power structures that are doing this anyway to to create this image that everything is diverse and 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 yet it's not producing any kind of cultural richness. <laughs> Um, it, it, yeah. it's, it's not connected to what I would see something as more um, spiritually organic diversity um, where, where everything, um, every 
kind of particular because it is grounded in in, in um, the gift character of of creation um, has genuine gift, and so two people, whatever other similarities they have, have a whole range of dissimilarities um, that can never be compressed into these very rigid categories. And when they are, that's when everything gets suffocated. That's why when you were talking about the, the kind of the form, the forms <laughs> that we've been created um, to, to enact and be and unfold towards and interact with, when we truthfully enact those, um, that's when that richness and plenitude flourishes. But when we don't, as you just said, we end up creating a, a pseudo form, which everyone conforms to, and it lacks any of that vibrancy and, and true spiritual depth that makes any kind of creativity significance. Yeah, let me, let me t- uh, quote something that C.S. Lewis said that really ties in nicely to these, all these thoughts. Um, and it'll, again, I'll give us something to re- respond to. Uh, this is from Mere Christianity. He's addressing the subject of originality. And he says, in literature and art, no man who, who bothers about being, uh, I'm sorry, let me read that again. In literature and art, no man who bothers about originality will ever be original. Whereas if you simply try to tell the truth without caring two pence how often it has been told before, you will, nine times out of ten, become original without even having noticed it. <laughs> it's a beautiful thought, and it's, and I think there's... There's uh, something, uh, you know, sort of paradoxical again at work, at work here. Um, so, you know, I have a background in the visual arts. And uh, one of the things that, you know, classically trained, you know, artists in the visual arts uh, work on when they start is copying. You know, you know they're trying to capture the human form or they're trying to represent uh, a flower or a, a vase or whatever it happens to, happens to be. And they're working on mastering light, shadow. They're working on <coughs> uh, mastering um, basic draftsmanship. You know, they're, they're, they're trying to get their skills down. Now, the, I, the understanding is, is that originality comes later. Uh, at the first step, you've got to know how to do things. <laughs> Just need to know how to do things. And when you can say you've mastered those things, you have a right at that point to introduce some, you know, uh, novel approaches or to, to, to whatever you're working on. But that's uh, something that you're doing intentionally at that point. And I think that's worth thinking about. And imagine there's something similar, you know, when we're talking about music, right? Yeah, well, that's, that was one of the things that was coming to mind is there, there is a, was a lot of pressure. I remember, as a, a, well, just growing up as a teenager playing music. Um, but then when I went into music school uh, to play guitar, there was a lot of pressure on this end of being original, you know. And, and I still, amazingly, I was listening to some, some uh, you know, some mature guitarists at this point who were really at their peak in those days. And they were kind of still giving advice. And they're still giving the same advice be original, you know, don't conform. <laughs> and yet the, 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 what made them great was the, yeah, there was an element of them doing their own thing, but it's because they had spent all that time learning a tradition and learning their skills that they were able to then freely work within that form. And so just going out and telling a young kid with a guitar, be original, the pressure is you don't go and learn what anyone else does. You just try to start doing your own thing. And most of the time it ends up terrible. Right. <laughs> because you, you have not been able to to be immersed. And, and we think, see this sort of in theology too, right? Addressing all the trends, but not having any of the wisdom that you've engaged by immersing yourself in the conversation and the problems and the issues of theology to where you basically don't have anything to say, even if it's, it's trendy for a moment. It's it, very similar. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, and an example I use regularly, um, actually, oddly enough, for medieval history, is um, the absolutely horrible advice people give to kids, child-rearing advice, don't color in the lines. Oh, right. Oh, yeah, yeah. The the idea being that if you color within the lines, it's going to stifle your creativity. 
Um, well, here's the problem. Coloring books aren't designed to promote your creativity. <laughs> coloring books are designed to give you basic skills in operating a pen or pencil or crayon or something. And coloring in the lines is teaching you how to use the tool. Right. You know, and the reason why this comes up historically is that Charlemagne uh, could read but could not write. Huh. He kept a pad, though the equivalent of a pad, uh, by his uh, bed at night where he would try to write and he just could never get the hang of it. And the reason is that you learn the fine muscle control needed to manipulate a pen when you're young. If you don't learn it, then it's very, very difficult to learn it ever after that. Right, right. So, but, but again, the point being that the exercise of color or the exercise of copying or the exercise of playing your scales and your arpeggios and you know all of these things are basic skills that you need that actually free you to yeah. do things later yeah yeah if you if you've seen uh, sort of the progression or maybe regression <laughs> of picasso's work over the years <laughs> when he was a young man uh, his he was classically trained and uh, he actually was quite good at you know, representing faces in the human form and, and so forth. It, it was, it was uh, all recognizable stuff, <laughs> mm-hmm. but, but it, he had the right after that to say, okay, I'm going to try these other things because he was trying to express a particular philosophy that we don't agree with, but mm-hmm. you know, it was something that he had, you could say he had the right to do. Whereas I think most people today would never be able to do what the early Picasso did, you know, and maybe not even be able to do the thing that he did late. <laughs> well, and actually, to, to put Picasso's skills in perspective, according to some sources I've read, he is probably one of the people who used to forge when he was prior to becoming <laughs> a major figure. He used to forge artwork. Well, you know, but that but that's actually something that I think it, is it's an incredible skill. Well, that's it because what you're doing. So, like when I was when I was just getting started, you know, I was enamored with particular artists and I wanted to be able to do what they did. And I, I, you know, I was maybe 13, 14 years old. I would actually take tracing paper mm-hmm. and I would, you know, I lay the tracing paper on top of whatever I thought was really cool. And I wanted to, to draw and I would trace it out. Now doing that again and again, uh, helped me to do what you just described, Glenn, you know, master of my use of the pen or pencil. And then I would, uh, you know, the next phase was, now laying the the piece of work that I wanted to rep, repro, you know reproduce alongside a blank piece of paper and then copy that way, and it was through that process of copying and trying to reproduce the effects, uh, you know the you know the the actual work of art, you know that I I acquired the, the skills that allowed me to go on and do my own thing, and I think one of the things that you know, as I think about, I think about it now, you know, I, I can look at in my own development as, as a visual artist, particular artists who had uh, an, a, sort of an, a contribution to make to the way I, the way I do things. And when I, when I look at my own, my own work, I can see little bits of them in my work. You know, there's a sense in which I can say, okay, I see that's where I got that. That's where I got that. Now it, through the, through the bringing together of these different things, plus my own kind of inescapable individuality. That's the thing. You, know, you are an individual, whether you want to be or not. <laughs> and you're going to have your own way of doing stuff, even if you try to be just like somebody else. You know, and, and now yeah. I, think, I think the great artists uh, tend to be the ones who, you know, hide their sources <laughs> really well. You know, you can't really, you can't look at their work and just say, oh, it's obviously picked up that from here and that from here and that from Now, some of the stuff that they do is their own stuff, but even the greats, yeah. you know, when you get them, you know, in a quiet, you know, you know, spot and get them, you know, to drink a little bit. So they loosen the, the tongue a bit. <laughs> they tell mm-hmm. you where they got stuff. 
Well, but, you know, yeah. it's often said in academia that originality is the art of concealing your sources. That's right. <laughs> That's it, a, well, it's it's, fu- it's funny you mentioned that. I I think I've told this story before, but my my first uh, time when I moved over over to Oxford, I, w- I went to visit one of the, the first pubs around, and the undergrads were just starting to arrive in into Oxford for for the start of the ter- new year. And there was this young guy and it was filled and he had a bunch of friends around him and he was just saying something. And he just I don't know, he had he had had enough to drink to where he just asked me a question out of nowhere. And so I kind of responded. It was a philosophical question. So I kind of responded with a few naming a few different people and quoting him. And he goes his first line to me after that was he goes, well, those are great ideas of other people. But don't you have any ideas of your own? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to which my reply is, I said, that itself is a great reply of someone else that you've kind of adopted, but you owe it to the whole tradition, mostly of which uh, culminates in Immanuel Kant, who said, dare to use your own thought. Right, right. Um, so you you were immersed in a, in a tradition, whether you liked it or not, and you were just kind of, um, you weren't being original and in expecting my originality. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, and and... There's a kind of, uh, again, uh, irony to the kind of this democratization of originality as well. Like when I was in Cambridge, everybody thought he was an artist, right? You know, <laughs> you know so you, you go around, everybody, you know, thinks he's an artist. And, uh, you know, when you think about the greats, you know, you know the Renaissance painters, they made their, they, they mixed their own paints. They made their own canvases. They made their own brushes. I mean, these, the, in other words, being an artist in those days was pretty major undertaking and you had to know a lot of different things. Today, you just go down to the arts supply superstore. I mean, there are like the <laughs> Home Depots of art supply. Yeah. <laughs> and you go yeah. in these places and there's everything you could possibly want. But then when you, when you actually see a lot of these people in action, their, their work uh, all kind of looks alike. It all has that kind of grungy, dirty feel. It all—it's it, the kind of—it's the kind of work that you could maybe perform with. I don't know, a can of spray paint on the side of a building, and it just doesn't—it doesn't really uh, speak to uh, you know uh, the uh, the you know the abilities of the of the artist. It's just sort of this crude, self-expressive kind of thing, where you know a person just as because it's the first thing that crops in their mind or the first sort of, uh, I don't know, impulse that they have, it must be valuable because it's, uh, you know, theirs and it's, and it's something that they're offering to the world. Well, it's sort of interesting. I was just thinking about this the other day is, I mean, what you do have is this kind of um, polarity um, between conceptions of, of, of reality and, within the attention, I think, within modernity or post-modernity, that kind of pulls people in these directions. I think there, on the one hand, is that feel that if they're not like this, everything is is a machine and determined. And so their way of fighting for that original agency is somehow to, to if not rebel, at least push off those determinations. Um, but in that way, they're almost like those, um, those quantum material in that view of the world in which there is no apparent cause just spontaneously generating. And so to be in continuity with that kind of, you know, um, indeterminacy, um, which they see as kind of being at the the spiritual core of reality. And I don't even think they think of it this deeply, but I do think this is the manifestation of that kind of relativity and that kind of um, cosmic uh, undoing that that has been promoted by by these conceptions of of reality, and so you do have kind of with with the um, postmodern variants of the self-expressive, this kind of um, you know nihilistic, you know, self-caused um, creation, which be, has more in common with kind of, uh, the chaotic and void rather than hovering over the waters and, and bringing forth plenitude. Right. Right. Well, you want to say something, Glenn, go ahead. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I was just going to say, we're right back to Carl Truman here. Um, yeah. because yeah. you know, what, one of the things that he brings out of Rousseau through the romantics that is then 
in a lot of ways almost put into scientific terminology by Freud, is the idea that who we are when we are born is fundamentally good and it gets spoiled by civilization. So in these movements where every child is an artist, you know, these ideas that everybody is an artist, there's probably truth there. But what where this goes is what we want then is the child to express him or herself unspoiled by things like practicing the basics. Right. But this is this is what frees up creativity. It frees up who the, the child really is and all that sort of thing. And the object for us is to cast off the shackles that civilization has put on us which then will free us up to be ourselves and to be creative and all those kinds of things as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. So let me just add a wrinkle here that takes us in a different direction. So we've been arguing for the value of mimesis Mm -hmm. uh, and actually saying that in order to have genuine poesis, you need to have mastered the basics. Then you're Mm -hmm. in a position to actually express something worth hearing or seeing or what have you. Um, as I was thinking about this, it seems to me that you can also go too far in the direction of mimesis. Yeah. And when I think about Eastern cultures, generally they are so strong in mimesis that uh, individuation, individuality, uh, creativity is crushed uh, in, in some cases. I, there's a saying among the Japanese, it's the nail that sticks out that gets hammered. You know, that kind of tells you the story there. But if yeah. you look, unless you are a, a a real connoisseur of Eastern art, it's very difficult for a Westerner to know when a particular work of art was made. You know, there's such a strong emphasis on conforming to the standards and reproducing what the masters have handed down to you that there's like, like I said, unless you're really good, have a really good eye and maybe have an eye for materials or particular ways in a particular time something was done, you can't see the difference. But in the West, I mean, not only can we tell, you know, a, 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 you know the difference between a particular work of visual art from century to century, sometimes from decade to decade, you know, you can say, oh, that's from the 70s and that's from the 30s. You know, you just look at it and say, that's a, there's a whole different aesthetic at work. There is a sense, I think, that... The West, when it's healthy, it has the best of mimesis and poesis. Our, our ability as a civilization to generate you know, you know, new things, create new things, whether we're talking about technological works or you know, the traditional arts, scientific discovery, all these different things, really is uh, something worth celebrating. Uh, I have some friends who are engineers uh, in the defense world, and I even have friends who are in the armed services and um, pretty high up. And uh, one of the things that, that these engineers and and these uh, and these these men in the service have shared with me is basically all the stuff that the that the Chinese military you know industrial complex are you know are developing is our stuff. So I, I had a I had a friend. <laughs> who is a pilot, he had it, he, he saw a photograph of the cockpit of the, the latest Chinese fighter. And he said, it's the F-35. <laughs> Everything's in the same place. <laughs> the knobs are the same. Everything's the same. They don't have it. They don't really have an ability to make something, you know, from scratch. That's their own, you know, um, I guess, work of art or, or, or at least industrial, you know, sort of product. Um, now maybe I'm being too harsh, but I don't think I am. Um, so the trick I think in the West is we've been able to, to see a a culture that has a kind of dynamism and my theory for what it's worth, uh, behind that dynamism is that our, our tradition is eclectic. We, you know, you know, Remy Bragg, you know, his book, eclectic culture, he's talking about Western culture. We have an ability to sort of just absorb stuff and kind of rework things and sort of, and because we have this continual sort of fermentation going on, new stuff is cropping up all the time. You know, just stuff that you cannot, you know, no one could have really anticipated coming. You know, like, have you ever seen like, uh, 
visions of the future from like the 19 teens, you know, where you'll, you'll see some artists portraying what life will be like in 2020. It's hilarious. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, basically what you get is basically their own time kind of projected out in a kind of a linear way to our time. And everything looks the same, except it's well, <laughs> think about a movie like Blade Runner. Yeah. Trying to anticipate what the future is going to look like, but you've still got pace homes. <laughs> well, that's yeah. funny. You know, the other night I watched The Paper Chase, you know, <laughs> John Hausman. And and uh, I was I was wanting I, I wanted to watch it just so I could see John Hausman dress down those students in class after class. Here is the dime. That's right. That's right. That's right. Call your mother. <laughs> well, it was very serious doubt you'll ever become a lawyer. Yes. I have not seen that movie. No. I, 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 <laughs> I used to show it every semester at Michigan State. Oh, did they? <laughs> and I went to see it every semester. <laughs> well, it's it's basically a, a professor's dream film. But anyway, yeah. uh, <laughs> but the uh, but in that film, uh, you've got a number of interesting things. But but you've got the they got the payphone thing. Remember when you were in college and you had to stand in line to use the phone, the dorm phone? <laughs> there were these scenes where this, you know, the character Hart was trying to get him make a phone call. And there's like seven guys waiting for the phone. <laughs> no one understands. <laughs> anyway, those were the good old days, baby. Yeah. But uh, getting back to my to my point about originality, um, there's something about the West. And I and I here's my theory. I think that it's uh, due to the fact that uh, in some sense, the Judeo-Christian and the Greco-Roman traditions are not entirely compatible. And because of that, there's a, always a kind of stirring in our mm -hmm. culture as one kind of part of our tradition is dominant or in sort of retreat, you know, that kind of thing. And I think that's one of the things that's behind the, you know, the genius of the West. Now, now it, to go to Asia, um, I'm at, I think this is probably true across the board, uh, but certainly within uh, like martial arts traditions, which is what I'm most familiar with in terms of Asian arts, and, and the word art really does apply here. They have a really different concept of, well, I don't even think they think strictly in terms of creativity in a way we would understand. The idea is, let's say with a martial art, let's say you're in Japan, you've got a master who has, you know, he, he's recognized as a great swords and he will teach a particular, they call them katas, a, a form, a pattern that you do. And the idea is that since he is enlightened or whatever, if you imitate him, you will become like him. And the idea is, it, it's very strictly a mimesis thing, as you said, but the object is ultimately not just to learn the form, but to transcend the form. Okay. You have to get, this is the way you learn your basics, but learning your basics takes you beyond just what you are doing into the mindset and sort of the spiritual attitude of the master. And I think this probably applies not just to martial arts, but to calligraphy, to painting, to, you know, fill in the blank. I mean, even to the tea ceremony. Um, there's, there's something that is supposed to transcend the rote repetition, but the way you get to that point is through the repetition. I mean, so it's, it's a very different way of, of thinking. It's a kind of ma mastery of, of, of something. Um, I mean, you know, I, I think that, you know, I, I think that you would find that, you know, in, even even in figures in the West, like Carl uh, Bard, um, when he was in the rampant liberalism um, and he was starting to go back and learn the ABCs, as he told, um, you know, his sidekick Turnheisen, um, went, goes to scripture uh, first, but then he starts to read it in conversation with the whole whole Christian tradition. And when he's reading Calvin, he's prepping these lectures before he gives the, his and he's he's completely underprepared. He was in the pastorate eleven years. Gets thrown into the the academic world. He's reading Calvin, and he said he's got this line: "Until you have read and walked completely with Calvin, you don't have a right to start to go in another direction." 
But if you just stay with Calvin, you're ceasing to be a Christian agent. Now, I don't like where Bart ended up, but nevertheless, I get his point here. His point is, is that there is something to being a, a Christian um, as part of the church um, in which we do have to learn from our fathers and mothers <laughs> and our parents in the faith, right? And But the goal of that is to, to prop you up to be the distinct gift and agent you are also to your time and place and the community and, and the church. And I think this is likewise with our human creatureliness. Um, whatever we do in terms of, of gifts that we have, um, I mean, think of, uh, you know, folk music traditions, right? Um, even someone like B Bob Dylan, I mean, what did he do? He, he learns Woody Guthrie, and then he starts reading, who did Woody Guthrie learn from? And he starts learning, and then you get this whole series of roots music that is the immersion in the tradition, the learning of it, to which then he can kind of develop in ways. And, and so that originality does spit out. But sometimes it's an originality that he's bringing into this moment things that aren't so original. He's bringing seeds of, of that tradition into the moment, and but he's bringing it in in a new way. And I think you could even say this of master things like martial arts. I mean, you learn these things, you perfect them, and then the next person comes along and they are bringing something along with all of that that is it's reproducing but it's also transforming because right. no one's this you know exactly the same well this brings up the matter of uh when, when we think about roots music uh roots i mean it, it, there are we, we're rootless today yeah um, and so people like a bob dylan need to go out and sort of find people and sort of intentionally connect to them and yeah yeah uh whereas you know before it was just something that kind of grew out of a particular community. You know, I think about like Earl Scruggs, you know, Scruggs style picking with the bluegrass, you know, yeah. when people think of bluegrass music today, you know, you know, Earl Scruggs and his, his uh, new way of do of picking is what yeah. they think was always the, the way it was done. You know, it was, yeah. it wasn't, you know, <laughs> you a hammer approach before that. And uh, you know, all the roles and all the kinds of things that we now associate with, you know, great banjo pickers uh, that was all kind of introduced during the thirties and 20 or thirties and forties and fifties by, you know, Scruggs and people who were around him, but he had been, you know, poor, he was a poor kid who just was sitting on his porch with a banjo <laughs> and kind of experimenting, mastering the old, the old approach, you know, the old kind of mountain kind of, you know, you know, drop thumb kind of thing. And yeah. then, and, you know, trying to, you know, work with a new way of, but it was very organic. It was sort of, he was within this tradition. Yeah. Uh, and he, he kind of found himself made this contribution that was just so revolutionary. It changed everything. And, and it, yeah. yeah. And ahead. it tended to be all around their life. I mean, they, you know, where they are, you know, they'd meet on the front porch and they'd play this music every day or on the weekends, everyone yeah. would come around. It's similar. I mean, think of, you know, Bill Monroe with, with the mandolin and bluegrass or Doc Watson, these figures, they revolutionized. I mean, again, most people think bluegrass goes all the way, way back. It, 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 it's very new on the scene in many ways, yeah. but it, it's connectedness to all these roots and it, it's, it's development of um, a line of, of something. So you are generation after generation is handing on a gift and handing on a set of riches that if we draw on them, we're able to have more than if we just had to come up with all that out of our spontaneous, you know, generating yeah, I, will. Well, I, I think that's one of the reasons why pop music is just so bad anymore. I mean, yeah. it's just the old pop music was was informed by folk yeah. music. It was informed by even classical music. Yeah, and you had people who had been classically trained, or they were actually, you know, formed in a community and that was always playing, always singing, just doing things. And people just kind of it was second nature to do things a certain way. And uh, so there was just a tremendous richness. Uh, and, and a layer a level of complexity right. that is utterly lacking now. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I hate to be one of those guys that says that uh, classic rock is, is 
you know, if you're going to do, if you're going to do modern music, classic rock is way better than what's going on now, but just yeah. look at, look at the levels of complexity and what's going on, how many different things you can get going in a classic rock tune. Whereas today it's all just very well, bland, straightforward, nothing, no, no subtleties. Yeah. And I actually know yeah. uh, young musicians who agree with you, Glenn. I mean, they, mm-hmm. they, they do see uh, kind of the, the classic rock era as kind of a golden age um, mm-hmm. that they can't reproduce. So you just can't yeah. do that stuff anymore. And I, yeah. I, I let, think, me, mm-hmm. let me throw one more thing in about music. I'm, I'm not a bluegrass guy. I don't play strings. I play mm-hmm. winds. Okay. But um, I, I started getting into Irish music. And there's a very strong, I mean, people associate fiddles with Ireland, but it turns out there's also a really strong flute tradition there that then gets carried over to whistle and so on. And what's interesting is that there are a couple of key people that you can point to that actually changed the way Irish flute was played. And some of it involved actually adapting techniques that were used in bagpipes. Okay. Hmm. So it hadn't been, you know, there, there, there's a thing called a cram that's used in alien piping um, mm. that you can't do a roll on a low D. D is the lowest note on the instrument. On a roll, you play a note above and then a note below and then back. Okay, so, but you can't do that on a low D. So how do you do a roll on a low D? Well, you adapt a technique from piping called a cram. And I'm not going to bother explaining that. But that, that's another way in which this kind of creativity comes in. It's not strictly just staying within the tradition. It's borrowing something from a related area and incorporating it in. And suddenly you've got something new. And, it, and that's, that's very fa- fascinating because I was just thinking of, um, think of the uh, Spanish writer Lorca, right? Um, poet who wrote the famous Deep Song. And here we have not just um, you know a style of music borrowing from style of music, but a poet drawing richly off of the Andalusian culture. And in that, the um, strands of Byzantium, Christianity, um, uh, Islam, and and it kind of uh, different things from its its kind of liturgical traditions, but also the kind of um, more folk elements uh, from that region and the way they eclectically came together and created almost this kind of beautiful rhythmic um, structure that the the beauty of of the language, the Spanish that uh, Lorca does, it it is incredible. To read it, you can feel the the, the pulse of that rich, vibrant tradition. And I think the spiritual connectedness, um, Mm -hmm. the metaphysical connectedness um, is something that 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 uh, a lot of people feel when they go to roots, but they don't recognize is really there. And that that I think is is um, I, th- I think that's one of the things we have to 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 not ignore is that I think at the heart of those roots and those traditions is this connectedness to reality and spirituality, um, which we don't have now. This spawn, you know, this this kind of just coming out of yourself, poetic. Right. You know, in a uh, poesis in this sense is completely disconnected from from that rich web of being that in the patterns of being that give depth to to music and its fullness or any art. Yeah. So we've, well, we've talked- another quick example. Uh, you go to West Side Story, uh, the song America. I like to right. in America. The right. rhythm, it's a six, eight, three, four rhythm. That is a Spanish dance rhythm that we can trace at least to the 13th century. Okay. <laughs> you know, there, there, there's a kind of depth that, that is pulled out. Sondheim knows this. He, you know, he, I don't know if he knows it goes all the way back to the Cantica de Santa Maria, but, um, you know, he, he's aware of this and he's, he's bringing out that tradition and using it in, in the context of, of a modern musical. Hmm. Yeah, and what we now today uh, refer to as cultural appropriation. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> but but you know, there this, is no but, other way. <laughs> but yeah, that's the point. That's what I'm getting. So you know, you can have a kind of growth from within with regard to some artistic you know tradition within a, a, a folk community. But I think the great leaps forward, so to speak, and this is kind of what I was getting at with regard to the Judeo-Christian, the Greco-Roman, is that there's some something that happens when there's a, a kind of a collision or a sort of mutual uh, sort of ferment, you know, fertilization. So when we think about the American folk scene, everything from Zydeco to bluegrass, you know, blues, everything in between. 
Oh, yeah. Uh, everything uh, is pretty clear uh, that we have uh, from the American folk sort of, you know, sort of uh, compendium is the result of the African and the Scots-Irish coming together. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, you can, you can see now these are both, uh, these are communities that had a lot of contact with each other in yeah. lots of ways over the years. And uh, if you listen to say African music, you know, if, if you're used to the American, you know, the African American musical traditions, like everything from ragtime to, you know, jazz to whatever you, you listen to African music and say, okay, I can see where some things came from, but I don't like the African music nearly as much as I like the, the African American music. Mm -hmm. And the same thing I think is also the case when we talk about sort of things like bluegrass or mountain music, uh, or even Zydeco, where you've got, uh, you know, uh, traditions of music that have been uh, in some sense transformed because of the contact with the African music. Um, so, you know, like now I, I've been told now you would know this better than me, Glenn. Uh, I've never been to Ireland, uh, never been to Scotland, but the people I, who I've known who have studied over there have just been astonished by how devoted the folks in those, uh, those areas are to American bluegrass and country music. Yeah. <laughs> our, our, our bus driver, when we were doing a tour in Ireland, our bus driver said he was going to put on a traditional Irish song. Uh, to get us going in the morning, and he put on On the Road Again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, that's, but that's the thing. It's, it's something about uh, this uh, collision of cultures, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. that where there was a mutual kind of uh, influence. The African, uh, you know, the slaves learned some things from their Scots, Irish, uh, you know, neighbors and vice versa. And, you know, for example, the banjo is an African instrument. Yep. yep. Adaptation of an African instrument. Yeah. Yep. yeah. So now we associate, you know, it's it's so associated with bluegrass music that a lot of African Americans don't want anything to be, you know, going anywhere near it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, 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 you know, about uh, maybe 10, maybe 20 years ago, I hate to guess how long ago it was, but there was a popular uh, world fusion music group called Afro Celt Sound Machine. Hmm. Yeah. And they were bringing in African drums and African rhythms and doing it with Celtic music. Wow. Exactly the same blend that you see in America, but in a totally different context. And, yeah, and you yeah. also, you kind of see, especially uh, you look at kind of New York, Bronx uh, area, where you also had a lot of the Latin cultures come in, mixed mm -hmm. with the Afro-Cuban culture and the American jazz scene. And you create salsa. And all, I mean, in, in that, the beat and the rhythm in those things connected with those drop chords and the, it's phenomenal. And, yeah. and what you get is this a rich web of music. And you have no idea that when you bring these things together in this kind of community, that 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 becomes starts to become the way of expressing all of those connections um, and, and those traditions. And you you create a, a rich web again of of meaning and music. Um, that connects not just one particular group together, but now a whole plenitude of traditions. And so these traditions, you just keep them, you know, completely isolated. They become almost like we were talking about just, you know, the reduplication of something over and over again to where it does lose its connectedness and meaning. But here they get brought into um, a, a new set of, of conditions and completely can, can do amazing things. So when I, when, I could, when I think about, you know, Western culture, broadly speaking, you know, I think we think of high culture and we think of the symphony, opera, et cetera. Excuse me one second. I need to step out. I will be back in a minute. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll, 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 we'll wait for it. But then there, then there is a uh, folk culture, folk music, uh, yeah. somehow, you know, mass uh, sort of media, mass culture has uh, eclipsed both those things. And yeah. I think in, uh, to the impoverishment of our, uh, you know, our culture uh, so that now, you know, there are formulas to, to make yeah. a, like a pop song and all these things that you just have to kind of follow kind of almost uh, in a mimetic way, but in a kind of a declining yeah. standard of, of, of execution. Yeah. And it, I, it, it's, it's amazing because I, I, you know, when I drive around, I can hear people blasting. And I always say it's the same song over and over again in every car all the time. And I mean, they blast it. And I'm just saying, how can you drive around and listen? I mean, how can you, what are you, 
there just really is this kind of uh, mindless, and it's not even a good, you know, um, combination of rhythm or melody or harmony in any sense of the word. And, and, and it's all over the place and it's not just one song. I mean, it's, it dominates the kind of pop air, popular airways. And then, um, and then you turn like NPR, you know, which tends to be pretty much leftist and everything else, but then they have this special section on music and it's always this really cool folk music that's up and coming and in rare artists. And I'm thinking, no, you should be listening to the stuff you're pretty much promoting <laughs> on everyone else because that's right. representative of what you think. Right. And this doesn't belong to you or shouldn't. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> this, this brings up an interesting thing to consider. And maybe this would be a way to kind of bring this plane in for a landing. Is, and, and it's getting back to the sort of the theological framework within yeah. which we think about creativity. So one of the more helpful people uh, in this matter is J.R. Tolkien. You know, he's yeah. helpful for a range of reasons. But one of those reasons is his uh, understanding of something he refers to as sub-creative work. So we have creation, which is the reality that we find ourselves in that is given to us by a creator who has spoken the world into being. So mm -hmm. there is a logos that mm -hmm. orders things. And uh, because we possess logos or logos, we can understand that order. But it isn't an order that is tyrannical in, this, in, in a certain sense. Now, there are limits, you know, we, we know, you know, the, the old illustration of, you know, just because you want to fly doesn't mean you can fly when you jump yeah. off a roof, you know, you, yeah. you're just <laughs> going to plummet to the ground and be crushed. Okay. There, there's that kind of uh, physical law that gives us some constraints, but when we understand the range of the laws, also things like, you know, uh, lift and uh, how momentum and lift can work together uh, to actually defy gravity. We're actually using the laws in such a way to express ourselves and our desires and our goals and so forth. And that's sub-creative work. You know, making an airplane is a sub-creative activity. Now we have things that we learn from, you know, in nature. Mm -hmm. And it does, it is, it is remarkable that it seems like, you know, when it comes to the advances in technology that we have, we're continually finding clever ways to sort of replicate things that are already happening in nature. <laughs> like when I, like when I think about a drone, like when you think about the, what you can do with a drone today, you know, I'm talking about an air drone, you know, generally, you know, a drone will have at least four propellers, which gives it the kind of mobility that uh, you can't, you know, reproduce with even a helicopter or, you know, um, an airplane, obviously. But what does that bring to mind? It brings to mind the dragonfly. You got four. It does exactly the same sorts of things a dragonfly does. It's 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 mimetic. <laughs> I mean, it, think of AI. It's trying to you know basically follow the the way um, that nature is ordered in right. order to reduplicate it. Mm -hmm. So you have this larger structure that we learn from, but there are uh, things that we can uh, create that uh, do elaborate. They're not strictly. I mean, the difference between a dragonfly and a drone is that a drone does what we want. <laughs> you know, we can command the drone and move it here and there, and you put a camera on it and spy on our neighbor, that kind of stuff. But, uh, but I think that um, this, is, this is, I think, an appropriate uh, subject for, for Christians to consider. I think another thing to think about with regard to all this is um, when we think about the incarnation, you know, what we're talking about with the incarnation is something new introduced to history. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. You know, this is something new. Um, so I, I think that actually, in part, uh, the creative impulse of the West uh, has something to do with the incarnation. The fact that we, uh, as, as Christians, recognize that there can be new things. So this is, this is a positive side to po poesis. You know, the way I started the conversation, it might have led people to believe that I'm against poesis. I, I'm not. <laughs> I just I think, think, it, I think... Yeah, and I think a way, a way of talking about it is, is we're talking... I mean, the, the first point is, is down to the kind, of, the kind of being an ensouled creature. I mean, what kind of self are we? Well, we're not a poetic in the sense that we, we generate our own being or 
anything else, really. I mean, we're premised, as, as philosophers like to say. Um, our will is premised. <laughs> um, so, so and, and, and it's also, you know, in bondage in some way. So, so, um, so there, is, there are limit, radical limits right there. And being in bondage means also that when we are trying to be po- poetic and think we're severing ourselves off from, from God and, and the order God has given for, for the good, that somehow we're doing something new. When actually, it, 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 you know, I think that's where, where the delusion is. But um, when, one of the things I think Christianity brings in, not merely mimesis versus um, um, the, the poetic, is that any po- poiesis that we have is the, the, the proper consequence of what, the, what used to go by the term pathos, another Greek term, suffering divine things. It's when we, we, we are premised, we suffer the divine. That isn't being hurt by the divine. It means that this is something we are not active in creating. We undergo. So in undergoing God's, God's endowment with a being and then ordering that form towards ends for the flourishing, when we do that, we are genuinely po- have, have real poesis too. And in that case, we actually bring life into, which I think is part of that subcreating, we're, we're part of the, you know, it, Christ basically talks about, you know, if you remain in me, he's the vine, you're the branches, you will bear much fruit, right? And I think in a Christian sense, that bearing much fruit is that byproduct of what you're talking about. Something new um, entering in from the eternal, if you will, breaking into the temporal and doing something new with that, that, that matter. Right, right. Another way of looking at this is to quote Arthur Holmes, all truth is God's truth. Yeah. And this is something I think that the church, we've forgotten it, but the early church was well aware of this. Yeah. And what that meant is that any truth, wherever we find it, is something that we can appropriate yeah. because, because it belongs to God. Yeah. And so when they went to the pagan world, they saw good things in the pagan world and they said, fine, that's ours. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it belongs to God. It's ours. Right. Now, so, so that's another element, I think, where Christianity contributes to the flourishing of creativity in the West. Because there's no problem with, you know, adopting or adapting anything that you find good or useful or true. Um, It's it's rather, in a lot of ways, like the English language. We have this absolutely enormous vocabulary because we steal words from everybody. (laughs) Um, But uh, the other other thing that, that came to mind is that, again, as a Christian, this is something that Ken Boa talks about. Um, We had Ken on the show a while back. Uh, He says that, um, and I'm probably going to butcher this, but he says something to the effect of, you know, when Paul talks about us being in Christ, a phrase he uses regularly, that Christ wants to, Christ reproduces his life in us to live his life through us as us. Mm -hmm. So so to, to unpack that a little bit. It's Christ's life in us is what we get with salvation. It's not just forgiveness of sins. It's, it's for me to live is Christ. So he's, he's reproducing his life in us. It's a gradual process, but it's taking place because he wants to live his life through us. The only one who can actually live the Christian life is Christ. But he wants to live that through us, but he's always going to do it as us. It's always going to be refracted through yeah. the prism of our our personality, our you know all of those kinds of things. So it's always a unique expression of the life of Christ in each one of us. Yeah. And again, this is the same kind of idea of the, this working out of something that is ultimately true in the richest and fullest sense of the word, but doing it in a way that is that doesn't diminish the truth of it. But that expresses it in a, a unique and different way that's that's unique to the individual. And that's where true creativity comes in as a gift of God. Yeah, I think that's probably a good place to land the airplane here. I think uh, <laughs> that's a great summary of uh, the way in which uh, our devotion to Christ and our lives in the world uh, come together. And there's a kind of creativity or recreation 
you know, we could play with this on and on, but we should yeah. probably wrap it up since we're, we're at time. <laughs> anyway, thanks a lot for listening to the uh, Theology Podcast. We appreciate your interest and your support. Um, we have lots of people who've rated us on uh, iTunes and elsewhere, and we do uh, thank those folks. If you've not done that and you like our show, uh, please do on whatever platform you listen to it on. And then uh, there are people who give to us, uh, and those gifts do uh, help to pay for the show. And uh, we're grateful for, for those folks. And if you'd like to uh, be one of those folks, there are different ways to go about that. You can either go directly to our website and make a contribution from that location, or you can go to the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network and become a member of the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network and designate the show as your, your favorite I don't know, charity, (laughs) (laughs) or you can go to uh, some of the platforms like on anchor. I know folks uh, give to the show through anchor, but anyway, we thank you for doing that. And if you're going to be in the uh, Connecticut sort of mid Connecticut area in mid July, we're going to be conducting a number of uh, meetings, at least two uh, or three, uh, where we're going to get together and record maybe two or three shows at a shot. And uh, hopefully uh, you'll be able to participate and actually sit close to us as we do so now that the COVID restrictions seem to be loosening a little bit. And uh, we'll let you know about those uh, when we know more. Uh, we'll probably put something up on our website or over on our Facebook page, probably both, uh, when, when that time gets near. Anyway, thanks a lot for listening, and bye-bye. Bye. bye. bye.